If you're visiting with us, we're working through the life of Moses. Today is the 28th message on it. I've got about three more, and uh, we will conclude that series. But there is an outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages at all the exits. They're kind of green color today. You can get one now or later. And then all of the messages going way back, 26 years, and then some are on the church website, both in print and audio format, so you can access those as well if you'd like. I want to, this morning, look at Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 1 through 13, and I will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. If you have another version, it'll be up here on the screen. So Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I'm 120 years old today, I'm no longer able to come and go, and the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross this Jordan. It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you, just as the Lord has spoken. The Lord will do to them, just as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. The Lord will deliver them up before you, and you shall do to them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give to them. And you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men, the women, and the children, and the alien who is in your town, so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God. And be careful to observe all the words of this law. Their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you're about to cross the Jordan to possess. In his book, Crisis, The Last Years of the Carter Presidency, Hamilton Jordan, who was President Carter's chief of staff, tells about the jarring transition of one day being at the center of world news events 
in the White House and the next day being out of office. The day before Carter left the presidency, they were feverishly working on trying to free up our hostages who were in Iran, if you're old enough to remember that uh, time in our history. And then <clears throat> the next day, Carter and his staff flew off to Plains, Georgia, where Carter was from, as Ronald Reagan took the oath of office as the next president of the United States. It was raining in Plains, Georgia, as President Carter and Jordan got off of the helicopter, and Carter announced the breaking news that had just happened, that our hostages had been freed. The crowd applauded and cheered, and a country band started up with a song, but it was all over in just a moment. And Carter and his men adjourned to a barn behind the peanut uh, warehouse there, where the staff had put together a wood shop for the president. And Jordan <clears throat> remarked at how strange it was that here is a man the day before at the center of world news <clears throat> seeking to free all of these hostages, the leader of our great nation, and now the next day here he is in a barn in rural Georgia, pouring over things like drills and saws and screwdrivers. It just was a jarring transition. Jordan himself <clears throat> decided to spend the night with his mother, who lived 40 miles away in Albany, Georgia. But he hadn't made any arrangements to get there because for several years now, he had not even had to think about how to get from one place to another. All of that was arranged for him, and so dripping wet and with a briefcase in one hand and a suitcase in the other, he walked around for about an hour trying to find somebody who would give him a ride to his home. Um, he finally went to a payphone. For those of you who are younger, those are a thing they used to have where before cell phones you had to put money in and stand there. You couldn't walk around and talk on the payphone. Uh, that was at um, Jimmy Carter's brother, Billy's old service station. So he went to the payphone and tried to call a cab, but all the cabs were busy taking VIPs to the airport. Uh, finally, he found a Georgia State patrolman he knew who agreed to drive him the 40 miles back to Albany, Georgia, to his mother's place. And then he wrote this. He said, it really is over, I thought, as I loaded my luggage into his trunk, climbed into his front seat, and headed home. You know, transitions aren't easy, and the bigger the transition, I'm sure the more traumatic it would be. Going from being the chief of staff of the President of the United States to being an unemployed Guy in rural Georgia must have been traumatic for Hamilton Jordan. Now, as you probably know, we're facing a major transition here because on April 1st, uh, Pastor Stan Johnson, who had served here for about 30 years, retired as our associate pastor. And then I'm retiring soon. 
after serving here as pastor since May of 1992 now. And the church is called, as of last Sunday, Dave Barry. We voted overwhelmingly to ask Dave to be our next senior pastor. And he's going to be starting sometime in the next few months. There will be a little overlap time, but he needs to get his family moved from uh, Oregon down to here. And please pray for that to go well, that they'll get a buyer and that they will find a place here to move. But my prayer is that this time of transition will go smoothly and that all of you will be as warmly welcoming of Pastor Dave as you have been of me, supporting me all of these years. Now, as you face a transition, you might ask, well, does the Bible have anything to say about how we go through transitions? And I believe that Moses is handing his leadership baton to Joshua in our text does have some relevant principles, although I want to state emphatically, I am not comparing myself to Moses in any way. He was a leader beyond leaders, and uh, I'm not comparing Dave to Joshua. But our text teaches us that for a healthy transition, uh, God's people need to trust in him in the battle that we fight and follow new godly leaders who will Keep his word central. Now, these are almost the final recorded words of this great man of God, so we should weigh them carefully. And there are four principles I want to bring out this morning. First of all, for a healthy transition, trust in God and his presence, and not in human leaders who inevitably are going to pass off the scene. In verse 2 and 3, Moses spoke to all of Israel and said, I'm 120 years old today. I am no longer able to come and go. And the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross this Jordan. It is the Lord, your God, who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy the nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you just as the Lord has spoken. As you probably know, Moses' life was marked by three very distinct 40-year periods. His first 40 years, he had, so to speak, a silver spoon in his mouth. He was raised in Pharaoh's palace by his daughter, who got him out of the bulrushes. And he would have had all of his earthly needs and then some met. I believe that whatever he needed, he could have spoken and the servants would rush to provide it. It was a very comfy lifestyle. Uh, Acts chapter 7 verse 22 says that Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. And he was a man of power in words and deeds. Then about age 40, he saw the Egyptian taskmaster beating one of the, uh, fellow, his fellow Israelites He killed that taskmaster, had to flee for his life to the remote desert of Midian, where he ends up marrying a shepherd's daughter and tending his father-in-law's sheep for the next 40 years. At that point, God appeared to him in the burning bush. We saw that early in our study of Moses. Calls him out to lead these mostly stiff-necked people 
out of Egypt and into the wilderness for the last 40 years of his life. As we saw recently, though, because Moses, in anger, struck the rock the second time with his rod, rather than speaking to the rock as God commanded, God said, you're not going to be the one to take them into the promised land. Moses now realizes his time on earth is short. And so he reminds Israel of this crucial fact, the Lord is with you. The Lord will go through uh, the, the Jordan River and go before you into the land of Canaan. And there are enemies there, but it is the Lord who will cross ahead of you. And he repeats this. Notice in verse 3, it is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. Verse 6, the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. Verse 8, the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. And then down in verse 23, which we didn't read, he says uh, to, um, <clears throat> or the Lord says to Joshua, I will be with you. Then when you get into the book of Joshua, chapter 1, verse 9, the Lord says to Joshua, Have not I commanded you, be strong and, well, first I skip verse 5, Just as I've been with Moses, I'll be with you, he says, I will not fail you. Or forsake you. Then he repeats, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Don't tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, that emphasis on God's presence, if you'll remember, takes us back to Exodus chapter 33. In that chapter, the chapter before Exodus 32 was the incident of the golden calf. Aaron uh, made that idolatrous statue for Israel while Moses was on the mountain. Moses came down, saw it, was angry with the people. And the Lord, in effect, said, um, you know, I'm not going to go with you through the wilderness and into the land. I'm going to send my angel with you. But if I go with you, I'm going to destroy this stiff-necked people. And Moses there, in effect, prays, Lord, if you're not going, we're not going. We're going to stay put in this barren wilderness because it's better to die with God in the wilderness than to go into the promised land without the Lord. And the Lord relents, and in Exodus 33:14 he says, My presence shall go with you, and I'll give you rest. And that theme of the presence of God runs through the Bible like a thread from Genesis to Revelation. That God, His purpose is, is to establish his presence with his people. Um, you get into the New Testament, and Jesus is about to ascend. And his very last words to his disciples there in Matthew 28, 20 are, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so <clears throat> he wasn't just speaking to the apostles. He was speaking to us, promising he is with us. And then... <clears throat> The author of Hebrews, chapter 13 and verse 5, cites from our text, from Deuteronomy 31.6. He's applying it to a different situation. He says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. And then he brings in this verse, 
For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And so it's vital at all times, but especially in a time of change, to realize that we have one solid, unchanging rock on which we stand, and that is the presence of our God. And don't ever do anything in your life that would threaten your sense of God's presence with you. Remember after David sinned with Bathsheba, and he penned Psalm 51 after he repented, and he prays there in verse 11, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. I've heard Bible teachers say, well, we can't pray that prayer because the Spirit of God dwells in every believer, and technically that's true, but interestingly, the Apostle Paul even says, may the Lord be with you on several occasions. You say, well, why is that? Because if we sin, we do not have the sense of God's presence with us. True, the Spirit of God will not abandon His true children, But also true, if we countenance sin in our lives, we can't feel close to God. And so we have to deal with our sin, walk with him so that we're not robbed of experiencing God's presence and blessing. The other theme that Moses repeats here is God's faithfulness to his promises. And that's very important in a time of change. God is faithful. He had promised the land of Canaan to Abraham, verse 7, talks about that. He's going to give it to them as their inheritance. So he reminds them in verse 6, he will not fail you or forsake you. And then he repeats in verse 8, he will not fail you or forsake you. Um, Why does he repeat that so often along with the other thing of God's presence? Because in a time of change, you need to be reminded over and over of the truth. Uh, I just read yesterday in my quiet time, 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter's about to die and he says, I want to stir you up by way of remembrance to these things you already know. And he reminds them of what they know because the great apostle Peter is about to die. In... uh, Joshua chapter 23 verse 14, Joshua is about to die and sounds a lot like what Moses is doing here. He says, now behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you, not one of them has failed. And so, God's word to us as a church in a time of transition is, number one, I'm with you. You can trust me. I am with you. And number two, I'm faithful. I've never yet reneged on a single promise, and Christ has promised to build his church, and he will build this church even though human leaders do reach the end of the line at times, as uh, we all know. A second principle that's here is that for a healthy transition, realize that there are going to be battles to fight, but with God's strength we can overcome in those battles. In verse 3, 
Moses reminds the people of what they knew very well, that there were frightening enemies in the land. Forty years before, the ten spies had come back and said, those guys are big. I mean, we were like grasshoppers in their sight. They haven't shrunk in size. They're still there. And Moses here uh, reminds them in verse 4, the Lord will do to them just as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. Those two powerful kings lived on the east side of the Jordan River, and Israel had already fought and conquered them before they crossed into the Promised Land, and they actually settled some of the tribes over there to the east. And so uh, they conquered them, and the promise is now God's going to do to those in the land like he did to them. Then in verse 5, regarding the future enemies in Canaan, Moses says, the Lord will deliver them up before you. And so he's reminding Israel that there are going to be battles. These guys are powerful, but nobody is as powerful as the Lord. And no enemy can stand against the Lord's presence and the Lord's strength through his people. And yet the people were going to have to fight depending on the Lord's strength. You know, it's interesting as you think about it, there are other ways they could have conquered the land. Remember when King Hezekiah was surrounded by Sennacherib's troops and he prayed and they got up in the morning and there were 185,000 dead troops. The angel of the Lord went out and somehow killed them all with a plague or something. I don't know, food poisoning, what they got, but they were all dead. God could have done that with the Canaanites. Smitten them all with disease. Move on in, Israel. Here's your new home. But instead, they had to fight. And it's a picture of the Christian life. Have you ever thought about how often the Christian life is pictured as a fight? Paul, Ephesians 6, well-known passage. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the evil one. And he pictures the things that we are to use as we fight the enemy. First um, Timothy Chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul exhorts Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Our, world, our, our enemies are the world and the flesh and the devil, and they never let up, so we have to fight continually. <clears throat> you get to the end of Paul's life, and when you come to the end of ministry, you think, what have I accomplished? You know, what, what is it I've done? And you think about what Paul could have listed. You know, I wrote 13 books of the New Testament, thank you. And uh, I planted dozens of churches all over the pagan world, thank you. And I've led many, many to Christ and <clears throat> discipled many. And he could have gone on and on. You know what he says at the end to Timothy? Three things. 2 Timothy 4.7. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. And I kept the faith. And that third one's kind of odd, isn't it? Paul was worried about keeping the faith. <laughs> this is Paul. You know, he wrote the book of Romans and, and all the other wonderful books. But he says, I've fought, I've finished, and I've kept the faith. And in Jude 3, Jude appeals to us. He says, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. 
When I began as a pastor over 41 years ago, I assumed that most of the battles I would fight would be against enemies out there. And true, the world is a powerful enemy and the world has infiltrated the church over the years. Just during my years of ministry, our godless culture has gone farther and farther and farther from the Lord. And now no-fault divorce is assumed as normal, even in churches. Uh, There is pervasive pornography in our culture. When I began, you didn't have that little cell phone that you could just easily access and look at that crud. Uh, Now, it's even many men in the church and women are defeated by that. Uh, When I began in ministry, the FCC prohibited any profanity in television shows. I mean, you couldn't even use words that now are pretty tame. Uh, They would bleep those out of shows. Now, there's just profanity all over our culture. You hear it walking down the street, the way young people speak. Uh, We've normalized homosexuality. It's on all the TV shows, movies, and in the church. Many young people think, well, it's normal, it's okay. They're born that way. And most recently, we've normalized transgenderism. Amazing changes in our country in 40 years. Many of the battles, however, don't come from outside. They come from within the evangelical camp. In the late 70s, when I began in ministry, a man who had been a professor at Fuller Seminary, he was the editor of Christianity Today, named Dr. Harold Lenzel, wrote a book in which he exposed the fact that there were many professors at Fuller Seminary teaching that there were errors in the Bible. And so a, a long battle erupted over the question of the inerrancy of Scripture. Then, in the 1980s, John MacArthur wrote several books confronting those who teach that you can be saved and yet not follow Jesus. That you can say, well, Jesus is my Savior, he's just not my Lord. And MacArthur wrote a number of books refuting that false teaching. At the same time, the prosperity gospel took off. The teaching that God's will is for every Christian to be financially prosperous, to be healed of every disease if you only have enough faith, and of course send a nice donation to the false teacher. Um, But that that wasn't widespread at first. Marla and I were in um, Guangzhou, or in uh, we were in Guangzhou, but we were in Macau in 1987 on that trip. And through a translator, I was speaking to a dear Chinese sister who risked her life going behind the uh, enemy lines there, going into Red China every week, loaded with Bible study materials for prisoners and others that she would mail out. And I mentioned to her the prosperity gospel, and she looked at me quizzically and kind of laughed softly and said, oh, that would never fly in China where we are persecuted. Well, I'm here to say it is all over China today. It's all over Africa. It's all over South America. It is all over America. At the same time, the new apostolic reformation came along, and these guys claim that we still have apostles, 
today and that we receive new prophetic revelation from God. Uh, again, false teaching, we have God's revelation in the Bible. I didn't put it in the notes, but at the same time, psychology was <clears throat> flooding the church. And I myself was tolerant of it for some time. And I, I finally saw the light and wrote a, an article that you can read on the church website of how I came to repent of Christian psychology. Um, then in the 1990s, there were a number of evangelical people who got enamored with the old ancient rituals of the church. And so they were leaving evangelicalism to rejoin or join the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church. And some of them came out with a document they all signed called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, in which they said we should set aside the places we differ and come together with all the places we agree on. And a number of leading Christian men signed that document. And in effect, it gave away the Reformation. Because the point where we differ with Rome, and I think with the Orthodox Church, is that we are justified, declared righteous by God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you set that aside, you've set aside the gospel. And that's what happened with those leaders. And then in the late 90s and early part of this century, along came a similar <clears throat> teaching, mostly out of Great Britain, called the New Perspective on Paul. And uh, these scholars were asserting that the reformers were mistaken when they said that justification is a legal declaration by God where he uh, <clears throat> imputes our sin to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us. And rather, they said this, uh, that justification just referred to becoming a part of the covenant community, that is, the believing community and so, in effect, it was a, again, a work salvation saying, uh, if you want to be saved, join the church, stay in the church, do good works, and eventually you'll get into heaven. Uh, that permeated many evangelical circles. Uh, more recently, just in the last few months, I have read about now a movement of so-called social justice that's threatening to confuse the gospel by making racial reconciliation, ministry to the poor, and economic equality the main mission of the church. Now, let me be clear. Of course, we should help the poor. Of course, we should denounce racism in every form. It's evil. Of course, we should labor to be fair and equitable and just in all ways. But, the issue is, is that the mission of the church? And the Bible is clear, our mission is the gospel. And if you try to reform people through outward conformity without changing the heart, it's not going to last. We have to preach the gospel because it's through uh, the new birth that God changes people's hearts and we see reformation in those other areas. So, my point in all of this is this, there have been battles, there are battles, and there will be battles to continue because the enemy is alive and functioning on 
planet Earth. Uh, I am confident, and one of the things I really appreciate about Pastor Dave is he is theologically astute and theologically driven, as you heard if you were here for the question and answer time, and I line up with him on those issues. Uh, so I know he is committed, and so am I, to Titus 1.9, and that is that the job of an elder is to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that means the gospel, so that he'll be able both to exhort in sound doctrine, that's the part we all like, but also to refute those who contradict. Some people don't like that part of the battle, but it's equally necessary. So relying on God's strength then, we can stand firm in the battles ahead. A third principle here is that for a healthy transition, older leaders then need to pass the baton down to courageous younger leaders who will carry on the fight of faith. Moses in verse 2 recognizes that at this point he is not capable of leading Israel to conquer the land and besides, um, not only was he old, but the Lord had told him he wouldn't be the one to do it. But you know, every leader should be able to do the math and realize, uh, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. I am getting older. The Apostle Paul recognized that when he said in 2 Corinthians 4.16 that his outer man was decaying. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, the time of his departure had come. The Apostle Peter, as I mentioned, recognized the same thing. He said the laying aside of his earthly dwelling was imminent. And so older leaders need to be ready and willing to say, you know, a younger guy can take this and do a great job. He's got more energy and drive and all of that than I have at this point in life. Now, when it came to Moses and Joshua, Moses didn't handpick Joshua. The Lord picked Joshua. Back in Deuteronomy 27, the Lord, I mean Moses, Numbers 27, excuse me, uh, the Lord told Moses, Joshua is your man. Moses knew he was getting old. He said, Lord, supply a leader. The Lord said, Joshua. And Joshua had served with Moses from his youth. Joshua had a shepherd's heart. And so he had the great privilege and responsibility of taking God's people into the promised land to their inheritance. As you study the history of both men, though, you realize Joshua was not Moses, and Moses was not Joshua, and that's true of every leader. We're all different. We all have different strengths and abilities and experiences, but God uses that as part of the body of Christ. And so the church should not rally around one man in a party spirit. You remember how the Corinthians were doing that. Some in Corinth were saying, well, I am of Paul. And others said, well, I'm of Apollos. And the third faction said, well, I'm of Cephas. That's Peter. And then the most spiritual, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek, said, well, I am of Christ. <laughs> I don't get involved in these little petty guys. I follow the Lord. And Paul refutes them all there in 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, he asks rhetorically, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants, slaves, 
through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. So Paul didn't lead anybody to Christ. The Lord uses servants to lead people to Christ. He goes on, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase or the growth. So then he concludes, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now, while different leaders have different gifts, they all need one quality, and that is courage to wage war in the spiritual battles that will come. And so Moses charges Joshua in verse 7, be strong and courageous. And then down in verse 23 of Deuteronomy 31, he commissions Joshua and he repeats, be strong and courageous. And then when Joshua began his leadership in Joshua chapter 1, we won't turn there, but four times, verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, and again in verse 18, God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. And to lead God's people requires strength because if you don't confront sin and error, things get off course. And I don't know anybody who likes doing that. I sure don't. It's not my favorite thing. But you do it because you fear God. You fear God above people, and you say, you know what? That's wrong. That, that's got to be corrected. And so in love, seeking to restore, you correct when the church gets off. And again, stand with Pastor Dave when he has to do that. It's easy to stand with a guy when he's giving you good encouragement, but when he has to confront, reprove, rebuke, exhort, uh, stand with him then too. So, to review, first of all, in a healthy transition, trust in the Lord and especially in his presence, not in human leaders. Human leaders pass off the scene. Secondly, realize there are going to be battles. The enemy is working, and a leader has to confront the enemy and fight that battle, but with God's strength, we can overcome. Thirdly, realize that older leaders have to pass off the scene at some point, but courageous younger leaders can be used of God to carry on the fight of faith. And then finally, for a healthy transition, God's leaders and God's people need to keep his word central and pass it on to their children. In verses 9 through 13, it says that Moses wrote down this law. It's referring at least to Deuteronomy, maybe to Genesis through Deuteronomy. I think it's the first reference to the fact that Moses wrote down these books. And we have them in our language. And he directs um, the priests to read it to all Israel, and he includes women and children and even the aliens that are living with them every seven years when they celebrate the Feast of Booze. And the objective was in verse 12 and 13, so that they, the people, may hear them and learn them and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law 
their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you're about to cross the Jordan to possess. And Bible commentators agree that the priest's job was not just to do this every seven years, as Moses here directs, but every week they were to instruct the people in the word of God. And of course, the application for us is we need to learn the word of God so that we can obey it, so we can fear God and follow him as his people. Have you ever just been overwhelmed with the thought, I've got the Bible in my language. If you've ever traveled to a place in this world where they don't, you realize what a privilege that I've got this book. And I can read it and understand it by God's grace in my language. I was in Poland a number of years ago, and the pastor there, his entire library fit on a bookshelf about that wide. It was embarrassing to me. Yeah, you've been in my office, four walls, floor to ceiling with books. And I thought, this poor brother, that's it. That's all he's got. Most of us have more Bible study helps and Bibles than pastors around the world have. The, the brother that was with me last week from India, he's had no formal training. He gets my sermons. And that's about all he gets for training. So we are privileged. But we're charged with the responsibility of understanding God's truth ourselves, and then teaching it, and especially the gospel, to our children. Now that means, first of all, you have to have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can't impart to your kids what you don't possess. But then having the word of God isn't enough and having the gospel isn't enough. You have to live the gospel because as any parent knows, children read your life more than they read your lectures. And so daily in your home, you have to walk with the Lord and humble yourself when you've wronged your family and ask their forgiveness and demonstrate the fruit of the spirit love and joy and peace and all of those qualities to your family so that your kids go, you know what? Dad's got reality with the Lord. And when you do that, then your children hopefully will learn God's word and they will fear and obey him. Now notice twice in verse 12 and verse 13, Moses hammers on fearing the Lord. Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You fear the Lord when you realize who He is. He is the Holy One. And fear of God is essential in a walk with God. I think our modern evangelical culture has forgotten the fear of God. But we shouldn't. We should have a reverence for God. You say, well, isn't God our loving Father? We can come into his presence freely? Yes, amen. But as the author of Hebrews says, you come into his presence with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And so as long as we keep God's word central, we'll fear the Lord 
and we'll pass on to our kids that holy reverence for the living God. So transitions can be difficult. I don't know who he was, but a man named Stanley Arnold wrote, the essence of human life is change, but for too many of us, change does not excite, it disturbs. If success is what we seek, we must make change a partner in our pursuit. Now we'll look at this next week, but the Lord goes on to tell Moses, after your departure and after Joshua, Israel is going to turn to idols. They're going to forsake the Lord. And the threat of apostasy is always present with us because Paul said in the end times, men are going to turn away from the truth. They'll be lovers of self and not lovers of God. And even in the church, there will be those who turn away. But it's not inevitable that we fall into that if we uh, have a healthy transition here. And we can do that by trusting in the Lord and his presence with us, not in any human leader. If we're willing to fight together, not with one another, but together against the enemy and stand with the pastor when he does that, uh, that we will uh, keep God's word central and live it and pass it down to our children. And so I'm confident the Lord is with us, that he will bless us. I hope I have more years that I can remain and serve here with Pastor Dave and uh, hope you will support him as well. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you're in a very precarious place. You're one heartbeat away from standing before God in judgment and all the good works in the world will not cut it because all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. In his mercy, God made a way, the way, the truth, and the life is Jesus Christ. He is the eternal son of God, came to this earth, took on human flesh, died in the place of sinners on the cross. And now God says that whoever will call on his name or the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. He says that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so the Bible ends on an invitation saying, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come and take of the water of life without cost. And that's God's invitation to you this morning. Abandon your works, trust in Jesus alone, and the Lord will give you eternal life as a free gift. Father, I pray that if any are here outside of Christ, today would be the day they meet the Savior and come into your family. I pray for this church that in the days and months ahead, Lord, we would be strong in you and in the strength of your might, that you would anoint and bless Pastor Dave as he leads us, and that you would help him and his family as they are in transition. Getting moved here is a major thing for a family of seven. So I, I pray you would go before them and be with them, and that... Uh, 
we would all labor together until you come in your gospel. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.